in, in, in my translation of this passage, when we have Jesus um, coming face to face with this man who was possessed by all these demons, uh, the spokesperson for the demons uh, that was speaking through the man, and my translation says this, what business do we have with each other? What business do we have with each other? In other words, uh, they're saying, you know, don't bother me. Get away from me. Don't bother me and I won't bother you. Or you stay on your side and I'll stay on mine. In the Greek, it's a very simple phrase. It says, what to me and to you? What's it to you? I think in modern language, we might say it this way. And some of you older folks won't get this. That's okay. You do you and I'll do me. When we, when we hear this phrase, it's interesting because I think what it recalls in my mind are arguments that happen in my house or in the car. And, you know, what, what, are you, what does this have to do with you? Or when I was younger and I was the pesky younger brother and my sister is trying to kind of shoo me away. Get out of here. What you're doing? Get out of my business. What are you doing? That type of reading of this text would be very wrong. There is something amazing that's happening in this text. Look at verse 7 where this, where this spokesperson is saying this. What business do we have to do with each other? Notice the title that we see given here. And we're used to this, aren't we? We're used to this that the only people in the book of Mark, the only thing in the book of Mark that seems to understand who Jesus is are the demons. That as Jesus is going along and He's casting out demons, it's the demons that, that call Him the name that He is and give us, seem to understand who He is. Just earlier um, in the boat, the disciples said, who is this man? And here we have the demons saying this, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They're getting it right. They're saying, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what business do we have with each other? Just leave us alone. Mark has really kind of subtly been driving home this point of who Jesus is. In fact, if you look at the end of this chapter in verse 19, that after, uh, after the, the, the demons had left this man and uh, this man has come back to Jesus and it says, I, I want you to notice something here. He, Jesus says, Go home and tell your people and report to them what great things here the Lord has done for you. And how He had mercy on you. Now, this title, many times in the New Testament, this title, uh, the Lord, this is also used in the Old Testament to speak of God. Lord, God, it's one of the names of God. It can be used in that way. And I think here it is being used in that way. And notice, notice what, how Mark reports this. This man is supposed to go and, and tell what God had done for him. And then in verse 20 it says that he went away to the Decapolis uh, and, and, and said... And proclaimed what great things Jesus had done for him. What Jesus had done for him. Jesus, God. And so here in this text, what we have, Jesus, the very Son of God. God Himself confronting these demons. And these demons are saying, what 
business do we have with you? This is not a small little dispute. Up until now, when we have Jesus confronting someone who is possessed with a demon, it's someone that is possessed with a demon or a spirit. And here in this text, when Jesus asks this, this demon his name, he says legion, for we are many. And legion is a word that was uh, used to describe uh, army and the armies in the Greek world or soldiers in an army. And it is thought to be used to describe between two and six thousand men. And we definitely see when Jesus puts the demons into the pigs that there's 2,000 pigs. And so this man is possessed with many thousands of demons. And so this confrontation is not small. But what we're going to see is that Jesus, God, God's own Son here, that the demonic forces have no power over Jesus. And so I want you to think about it maybe this way as they're asking this question, what business do we have to do with one another? Let's think of it this way. Let's say you go home to your house after this service and there is somebody that has broken into your house and is stealing your stuff or attempting to steal your stuff. How silly would it be for you to go in and you confront this robber and the robber says, what business do we have to do with each other? (laughs) What you would say to that person is, this is my house. We have a lot of business to do with one another. This is what Jesus is confronting in this text with these demons. Just because they're in a Gentile place and and they, they think maybe they're safe here and they're saying, what business do we have to do with each other? We see that Jesus is saying, we have business to do with one another. And we'll see later that there is some unfinished business as well. So today, we're going to see Jesus has business dealings, not only with these demons, but with this man. But with this man. Now, one of the things in my life as a uh, helper and a counselor, that um, it's, it's both a, a privilege and it's, and, it's, and it's sad, is that I have seen people, I have been with people at some of the lowest times in their life. That, that some of the times when I've been called by folks, uh, especially uh, in, when I was full-time in kind of the counseling and helping, that I see people kind of at the lowest of lows, in, in times of just gut-wrenching pain. I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever sat with someone who is just in inner turmoil and inner pain at a deep level, and it's just gut-wrenching. It's, it's, it's just to a place that it just feels almost at times not able to carry that burden. And sometimes that despair, that agony can become so deep and can become so hurtful that that these thoughts begin to pop up that the best thing to do is to to maybe just end it all. Maybe to hurt oneself, to just end it all, to get out of the agony, to get out of the despair. Sometimes when people are in agony, hurt, and despair, they lash out to others and they they maybe get at danger to other people people one time there was a man that I was I was dealing with and um, he he was in turmoil he was in pain he was in the midst of chaos and to add to that he had turned to to drugs and alcohol to try to solve his problems and in one of the midst of one of his binges he called me and was just like hey this is it I'm ending it all 
And, and I got him to, 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 not, to, to promise me that he would not do that and that he would meet me. And I went and met him, picked him up, and I had to take him to the emergency room. And they graciously let me go with him that I took him back to this room there in the emergency room that was padded. No chairs, no furniture. They take his shoes. They take any loose clothing. And just in the middle of the floor was a drain where if he had to go to the restroom, he could go to the restroom. That he was in such extreme torment and pain that the only thing that they could do to keep him safe in that moment while they were trying to get some medication in him was to put him in this padded room. When I was in Louisville, Kentucky, I was working with youth and I was in a youth hospital for, for kids that were going through some pretty extreme things emotionally. And I'll never forget the horror of walking into a room where there was this contraction, this table that had these straps on it for if the kids got so unruly that they were going to hurt themselves or somebody else that there was times that they needed to strap them down until they could get them the help they needed for them to be able to calm down. That this is how much turmoil and pain that some of these kids were under. This man, this man that we confront in this story was in this kind of turmoil and was in this kind of pain. Now, he wasn't under necessarily, this wasn't like maybe depression or alcohol and drugs or something like that. This man was tormented by demons, but what we see, he is tormented all the same. And we see in this text, they had tried to chain him. They had tried to keep him from hurting himself and hurting others, but he continued to break the chains. Look at verse 2. It says, When he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. I want you to maybe, just for a moment, put yourself in the disciples' position. What we know, if we look at verse 1, it says they came to the other side. As Gary preached last week, what we saw was Gary preached the middle section of this voyage, this passage, that um, the week before, the text tells us that there was a journey. Look in verse 35 of chapter 4. On that day when the evening came, he said said to them, let's go over to the other shore. Then we have the journey. And on the journey, the storm came. And in the middle of the storm, uh, the disciples were scared and they woke Jesus up. And in verse 39, he got up, he rebuked the wind and said, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the rains obey him? So these are these disciples, right? They were in this boat. They've been in this crazy situation. Everything's kind of intense. I don't know what's going on inside of them. All of a sudden they land on this shore and I wonder what their expectations were when they came to the other side. They knew they were going to Gentile territory. Now this is speculation, but I wonder if the disciples didn't think that this was going to be a time of some rest and relaxation. If you've been hanging with us through this series, one of the things that you know that as Jesus was existing, that one of the things that continued to happen is that the crowds were so large around him that they pressed him and that they would press him down to the to the seashore and that he would have a boat he could get on so that he could preach and he could do other things. And I wonder if the disciples were thinking, man, we're going to go over here to this Gentile territory. They don't know anything about Jesus and we're just going to relax. We're just going to hang out. 
And immediately, immediately as they get over on this shore, maybe thinking that they're going to get some breathing room, they come from the storm, this amazement, to this storm of a man. To this storm of a man who is tormented. And he's coming right at them. It says immediately. I want you to look at the description of this man in verse 3 through 5. He had his dwelling among the tombs. It was very common in this day and age in these areas that if there was someone that they didn't know what to do with, if he was a danger to society, that they would push them out of the city, push them out to where the tombs were. This man was living. He was dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. So here's this strong man who they feel like they need to subdue and chain him. But he's so strong, he's so powerful, he's so tormented that he is breaking the chains. They can't even subdue him anymore. And then in verse 5, constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and the mountains. And gashing himself with stones. This was a man in great turmoil, in great pain. He was tormented. And can you imagine this man rushing towards you? Many of you would be reaching for, if you carry a gun, maybe you'd be reaching for the gun or a knife or getting in your karate stance. And here this man comes rushing towards the disciples and without a word, without a word, look at verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. You see, this man in his natural state may not know who Jesus is. The herdsmen that we're going to talk about in a minute and the townspeople may not know who Jesus is. But the demons knew who he was. The demons understood who this Jesus was. And look at look at this. Look at what they ask him. Look at verse seven again and shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high, I torment you. I, I, I implore you by God, do not torment me. That this these demons, they know who this Jesus is and they bow down before him because they know the power that he has. They know the business that he has with them and they are imploring him. They are begging him not to torment them. Now. The next couple of verses are this really kind of strange interaction and, and a lot of questions have been asked by these next verses and and I think sometimes when we ask these questions we lose the main point of the text and so we're not going to dig into all the questions I'll mention a couple of them but I want you to see and hear the main point that is here look at verse 8 through 13 for he had been saying to him come out of the man you unclean spirit and was asking him what is your name and he said to him my name is legion for we are many now one of the things that is not going on here because Jesus doesn't do it in any other place it's not that Jesus has to have the name of the demon in order to get the demon out of the man. Right? Some of you may have heard that stuff. That's not what is going on here. It's also not going on here that Jesus is trying to get the demons to come out. They won't come out. And he gets stuck. So he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I've got to get their name. And that's how we cast them out. No, no, no. That's not what's going on here. These two verses are happening simultaneously. Jesus was 
was was casting these demons out. And as he was doing that, he is asking their name and they say legion. And the point of the text is that there were thousands of them, like we have already said. And he said, my name is Legion. And in verse 10, and he began to implore him earnestly, do not send them out of the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. Remember, we are in Gentile territory. So this was uh, this is these are bacon eaters, right? Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain and the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission and coming out of coming out. The unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And one pastor, in commenting on these verses, told a really bad joke that they did a swine dive. Which, which I thought was a really bad joke as well. The point, the point here, is that these demons, in the presence of Jesus, the Son of God, had no chance. They had no chance. The power of God over the legion of demons, however many thousands of them there were, had absolutely no chance. That Jesus is greater and more powerful than any demonic force that exists. The other point that we see here that I hope we don't miss is that Jesus cares for this man. And one of the things that I want you to think about is how awful is Satan? How awful is Satan that he would put thousands of demons in this poor man? And here we see Jesus come along and we see Jesus' care for this poor man. Look at verse 15. When the herdsmen came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed, notice what's happening. This man who had been demon possessed is sitting down, he's clothed. He's in his right mind. The very man who had the legion was who was sitting there and they became frightened. By the word of God. By the word of God, everything changed for this man. Do you see that? Everything changed for this man. This man went from tortured, tormented, gashing himself, screaming and yelling, to sitting at the feet of the Savior, calmly and clothed. The demons had been defeated. This man had been restored. And there were no more need for shackles, for chains. He had been freed. This man in an instant, by the very word of Jesus, went from the lowest of lows to the feet of of the Savior of the universe. He went from the pit of despair into the arms of His Savior with a word. And the question that I would have is what about you? What about you? Now, I am not going into... I do believe that demon possession still happens today, which is not going to be the sermon where we talk about that. But my, my assumption is, my assumption would be this, that probably nobody in here's testimony is like this man's. Probably nobody's testimony in here was that you were demon possessed and then Jesus spoke a word or you heard the gospel and all of a sudden that you were changed. 
However, maybe we weren't demon-possessed, but all of us in our natural state were possessed by Satan. We were living according to the power of the prince of this world. We were in his domain. We were under his power. We were under his spell. And in a word, in a word, in the gospel, we were freed if you're a Christian. For some of us, for some of us, that word was forgiven. For some of us, that word was loved. For some of us, that word was daughter. For some of us, that word was son. For some of us, that word was mine. And no matter what condition you were in before, when the grace of God came into your life, the power and the chains that sin held on you were broken and you were free. So that all of us, all of us have experienced, if you're a Christian, you've experienced the power of God in your life over the power of satanic forces. You may not have been possessed by a demon, but you were under the possession of Satan. And if you're a Christian, you have been set free and you have been released. Throughout my work, I have worked with a lot of people who have been tormented by drugs and alcohol. And there's a program that, uh, that in some circles is controversial, but um, has helped a lot of people, Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous started in the 1930s. And you may not know this, but in its original format, Alcoholics Anonymous was very Christian. That the businessmen that kind of came up with this group uh, were, were very Christian. In fact, the first two, there were six tenets in the beginning. Now there's 12 steps, but the, the six tenets... The first one was this. This is the language that was used. Was this. Man is a sinner. The second tenet was man can be changed. Over the years that was adapted a little bit. Man is a sinner. Man is powerless. And the second point that became the second step. Was that you must recognize. That you need God to restore you to sanity. This is the gospel. And this, is, this gospel message has taken men and women who have been entrapped and tormented by addiction and released them from that chain. And one of the things that's interesting, when I look at uh, some of the folks I've worked with that have had addictions and their families have maybe brought them to see me or have taken them to a place where they need help, and one of the things is that the family's always like, oh, we would do anything and this great miracle occurs in their life. And several of the men and women I've worked with have come to know the Lord and have gotten sober. And so what you would expect is the whole family just a great revival. And I'm shocked at how many times that doesn't happen. This miracle happens right in front of someone's face. In this text, think about this. There's this man who had been torment, was tormented and was tormenting others. Everybody knew him. They had to chain him down. He was delivered. What do you think would happen in that community? Revival. Massive altar call. Everybody coming to know who Jesus was and being saved. And that is not what happened. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it is that happened. 
So we, we see that there were herdsmen here. They were watching what happened and they went away and they reported. And when they came and they observed this man sitting with Jesus, notice what it says. It says that they were what? They were frightened. They were frightened. Just like when Jesus calms the wind and calms the storm in verse 41 of chapter 4, it says that the disciples were frightened, saying, who is this man? I think this is a similar response, except the disciples knew more. But they were frightened. They were saying, who is this man? And notice what happens then. Notice what happens then. In verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. They began to implore him to leave their region. So think about the irony of this. You have this man that was possessed by demons, that was so tumultuous that they had to make him leave their city and be chained up in the tombs, And then you have a man who comes in and he frees this man from demon possession and something so twisted is going on in their hearts that they ask that man to leave as well. What in the world's going on? Now this is speculation, but I think it's probably pretty close. What does each one of those pigs represent? The almighty dollar, right? That Jesus in performing this miracle was messing with their way of life. Some believe that maybe these herdsmen were watching after the, the city or the, 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 the country, the region's um, what way of making a living. And this, so these 2,000, that was a lot of pigs. It's a lot of pork going over that cliff. And so Jesus was messing with their way of life. And did Jesus not care? What's Jesus doing? These pigs. And I think about how hard a heart has to be To see a man in this condition who was so tortured and tormented that the loss of money becomes the main thing instead of, oh my goodness, this man has been healed. These people in this city, they want no business with this man Jesus. They want no business with him. They want Jesus out of their business. And they tell Him to get on the boat and to leave. And Jesus does. However, however, Jesus isn't done with them either. They may be pushing Jesus out of the city, but Jesus still has business with these town people. Follow follow what happens next. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us, as he was getting in the boat, they asked him to leave as he was getting in the boat, the man who had become demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. Natural response, right? Wouldn't you have done the same thing? You're the only believer. You've been freed by these demons. You've been sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think probably what was happening, I mean, you know, it took the herdsmen a while to go to the city, tell everybody he'd come back. They had to find clothes for the man. They clothed him. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I think Jesus is is talking with him about the gospel and about the kingdom of God. They come back to him. They come back to him. They make Jesus leave. And I think I would be just like this guy. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm riding with him. I'm out of here. I'm getting on the boat. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm gone. This is a natural, normal response. But notice, notice what Jesus does. 
Jesus doesn't let him get in the boat. Verse 19, and he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them the things that the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for them. So no, he didn't just go home. He went to the Decapolis, which is a word that was designated for for ten cities. There were these ten Greek cities that this man, not only did he go home, but he went out and proclaimed what the Lord had done for him and the mercy that Jesus had on him. You see in this text, Jesus wasn't done with this city. Jesus still had business in this city and he used this man to go and to tell about where and who he was and what had happened to him. Now, as we hear this story and we hear this text, one of the things that I want you to know is that there's still some unfinished business of Jesus. There's still some unfinished business of Jesus. I, I, I think as we read this text where these demons were put into this, into this swine and they ran off this cliff and they were drowned into the lake, that us, as we read it, it should draw us to the unfinished business that Jesus has with Satan and his minions in our day. That as these demons were destroyed in the lake, guess what? There's some unfinished business that will be dealt with. Satan and his demons will one day be drowned in another lake of fire where their destruction will be total and no more. There will be a day where Satan has no power and his demons are defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that day is coming. And Jesus, we are to be reminded that Jesus has power over the demonic. And it is his business to destroy the the demons and to release people from the power of that. But there's more. There's more. More. There's unfinished business. You're still here. When Jesus saved you, you didn't get in the boat and go home. Believe me, I wish that's what would have happened. But just like this man, when Jesus is getting in the boat and leaving, when you come to Christ, Christ leaves you here because you have a purpose as well. In those six tenets that later became part of the 12 steps, one of the last tenets is this. Those who have been changed need to change others or have the duty, the responsibility to change others. This is very gospel-centric, except we would say it something like this. Those who have been saved have the responsibility to allow God to work through them to share the gospels with uh, the gospel with others so that others may come to know him as well so that others may experience the same change that the gospel brings you know what lurks in the background of this text is that we're just a few verses away from the parable of the soils remember that the parable of the soils and so I want to ask you this Which one of you, if you would have been on the boat with Jesus and got to shore, would have seen the demoniac and been like, good soil? I asked this question earlier. Which one of you would have said, I want that man on my team? And somebody corrected me after and said, well, it depends on what kind of team you're talking about. Like, if it's a football team or maybe an MMA fight, yeah, bring him on, you know. 
He'd been nice in a cage match, I guess. Not nice, but you know what I mean. Good to have if you're one to win. But as we think about the parable of the sower, and we think about the good soil produces fruit, and what's inherent in that fruit, and what's inherent to the text of the good soil, is that when that fruit grows and matures, that what's in fruit, well, seeds are in fruit. And so, from this fruit, you get other fruit, you get other fruit, you get other fruit, you get other fruit. It's all the same picture. That as Jesus looks at this man, and Jesus sees in him good soil, rescues him from the demons, brings him into his family, yes, this man is now a sower. He's a sower. Only Jesus knows. Only Jesus knows the soil. Only Jesus is the one that can prepare the soil. And only Jesus knew the business that he had that day with that demoniac and that what would go down with him. And I want to ask you, what is your business with Jesus? Are you here this morning thinking that you have no business with Jesus? You do have business with Jesus. Jesus isn't done with you yet. It could be that some of you are here this morning. It could be that there's one of you or many of you or some that are watching over the live stream. They're in a horrible place and you've never, you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You've never recognized that you were a sinner. You've never, you've never thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus for salvation And Jesus this morning has business to do with you. And if you would confess your sins and confess Him as Lord, today, Jesus will take you from being possessed by the devil to being one of His children. Doesn't mean all your problems will go away, but it means your biggest problem, your sin issue, will be washed away. This sin nature that you are shackled to will come undone. Done, and He will make you a new creation. And for the rest of us who have placed our faith in Christ, He has business with you this morning. He has business with you. I think many of us, I think many of us live our life as if, as if, Christ saved us to get us in the boat. Many of us are living our life like we're on a Christian cruise that we're just trying to mind our own business and get on down the river and get home. You're not on the boat. Jesus has business to do in this world through you. That He has saved you and He has equipped you to bear fruit in this world world. And one of the things that I want you to recognize is that as you are to be going, as you are to be sowing seed, you don't know the soil. And you may have people in your life that needs to hear the message and you may be thinking, no way, not that guy. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that we're not in control of the soil. One of the things that strikes me, especially over the past year and year and a half, 
is that it used to be that one of the excuses that we would give, I would give for not sharing my faith is that um, I didn't want to be controversial. I think that excuse has gone away over the past year and a half. I think many of us, many of you, are willing to be controversial if it's the right subject. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I am saying, what I am saying, how much more, how much more should we be willing to step in and be people of the gospel message? And you may say, well, what do I say? Just like this man, go and tell of what God has done for you. I was meeting with a man this week who is just a, he's an awesome guy. We were having lunch together. And um, he is just one of those, uh, you know, what I would call just Christian warriors. Just, he, he's, he's an insurance salesman, but he is a, he's just a great man of God. And everywhere he goes, he's, he's just being light in, a, in the dark world and bringing a message of hope. And, and I have never asked him his testimony. And I was thinking, you know, I don't know what I was thinking his testimony was. But as I asked him his testimony, here's what he told me. He said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, I know this can be controversial in some circles. And I was like, okay, here we go. He's like, but, you know, really, when I was five years old, God saved me. And he just talked about this path that he and the Lord had been on since he was five years old. Some of you this morning may be saying, yeah, that's me. I don't have that testimony. People won't listen to me. That's not the case. What a wonderful testimony that God has given you that when you were five years old, He brought you into His family and and how He preserved you from a life of torment and terror. What a testimony. And what a testimony that, that this man, and I'm sure that you have, if this is you with this testimony, of what God has been doing in your life since the time you were five years old. If you can't give testimony of that, then there could be something that is there. Go and tell. Go and tell. If you are His, you are here for a purpose, and that is that is to deal with some of the unfinished business in the world, to bring the light of the gospel to those who need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray that as we go as a church, that we will be a people who sow seeds of the gospel, that we will be willing to step in and to talk about how great you are and what you have done in our life. God, we know that that doesn't mean that we necessarily go down to the street corner with a megaphone, but it does mean that we care enough about people that as we are meeting and sitting with them, if we, if we detect that they need to hear about your goodness and your grace, that we're willing to do it. It's what we're here for. Help us to be your salt and your light. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me.